Good morning. Go ahead and grab your Bible. We've got a uh, big text in front of us today. I was going to do a quick overview, but uh, for just the sake of time and the the task I have before me today uh, with working through chapter 8 of Amos, um, not going to do that. So we're going to actually just kind of get right into this in just a moment. Uh, If you are new here, if you haven't uh, been following with uh, our study of this uh, minor prophet, then uh, you can check in our uh, or check out our uh, Spotify page. Uh, we have all of our sermons there. A few of them are on YouTube. We had a couple technical difficulties the last couple of weeks, but uh, they should be added soon. So uh, today we're in Amos chapter eight. I'm going to work our way through all fourteen glorious verses. Amos chapter 8, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some at the table. Uh, I'll be looking at the ESV, preaching there. Amos chapter 8, thank you Pastor Brandon uh, for just that beautiful time of reflection. Uh, the Lord's Supper, what a, what a joy it is, right, to celebrate with our brothers and sisters, to have the family meal and to remember the reason and what actually makes us family, and that is the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amos chapter 8, 1 through 14. Oh, let me do this too. Uh, let me just tell you kind of where we're going the next, uh, I guess, month, month and a half to the end of the year. Uh, so this week we'll finish up, uh, obviously, chapter 8. Uh, the next two weeks uh, we'll finish up chapter 9. Um, one more week of uh, a lot of judgment and doom and gloom. And then the end of chapter 9 of Amos, uh, we see a lot of uh, restoration. We see the Davidic covenant. We'll actually talk a little bit about that. Uh, it's going to be a, uh, it'll be a blessing. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and then we will uh, approach the Advent season, uh, the season of Christmas. Um, and so we, we celebrate, we observe Advent as we kind of, uh, we wait for uh, the second coming of the Lord. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and then at the beginning of the year, we're going to start a study in uh, the Gospel of John. And so we'll be walking through that for uh, however long it takes. Um, it may do some little mini-series uh, in and out because uh, that's going to be a, a long journey. Um, but we'll be able to walk through that together and uh, really looking forward to that. So uh, just so you kind of have a, a forecast of what's to come, I think that's important for us. <sighs> Amos chapter 8, 1 through 14. Let me read this. Uh, We'll pray, and then we will look at God's word. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The song of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the shaft of the wheat 
The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Verse 11, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and north to east and shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you've, you've given us your word to guide us, to instruct us, to correct us. Lord, help us to look back at the folly of Israel and help us to grow in our understanding of who you've called us to be as your people. Uh, Father, I pray that this time will uh, convict the proud. It would humble the sinner, but it would encourage the weak, the weary. It would bring strength to those who are feeling heavy laden that they would see the glorious truth of the Gospel that You have indeed brought salvation for all those who call upon the name of the Lord. So Father, we need Your help. So we ask what we know not, would You teach us? What we are not, would You make us? What we have not, give us by Your grace, for Your glory. In Christ's name, God's people said, Amen. So today as we look at the fourth vision given to God from God to Amos as we approach the end of this prophecy, uh, we, we get to see what's taking place. Uh, this text that was, we have in front of us was written over 2,800 years ago, but it still has great implications for each of us today. Uh, in chapter 7, uh, we looked at it last week. We saw the verbal assault, the picture, kind of turn to a visual assault as Amos describes the visions now that the Lord has given to him. Uh, at first there were uh, the words of the Lord. He was hearing from the Lord in a prophetic way. And then now he's expressing the visions that he is seeing. Uh, last week we learned that the Israelites, they rejected this message. Uh, they, they, they didn't like it. They didn't want what was being said. I remember uh, the priest, they told Amos, they said, hey, go away. Like, like, take your message somewhere else because we don't want to hear it. But we saw Amos's compassion, his conviction, and his courage as he stood in the face of opposition. 
uh, which should encourage us all to do the same. Today we look at the continued devastation of the Lord's judgment as Amos describes this fourth vision the Lord has given to him, warning the people of Israel that God's patience has run thin. The time is up. There is judgment that is here. Most specifically in this vision, Amos identifies the sin of self-satisfaction. Uh, And self-satisfaction, by definition, is an excessive satisfaction with one's achievements or advancement. Uh, Another way to put it for our particular text is that self-satisfaction is an unhealthy obsession with one's personal achievements and advancements that results in the neglect of God and others. I'll read that again. Self-satisfaction is an unhealthy obsession with one's personal achievements and advancements that result in the neglect of God and others. This type of lifestyle is rampant in our day as well. We've all fallen subject to the sin of self-satisfaction in one way or another at some point in our lives. Uh, Some more often than others, but still this is a common struggle for all of us who live in the midst of a fallen world. Uh, See, we are born with an inherent sin nature. Uh, This nature is often referred to as our flesh in theological terms. Uh, And our flesh screams like, give me more. Uh, Give me more money. Uh, Give me more power. Give me more influence. Uh, Give me more uh, and better looks. Give me more clothing. Give me more intelligence. Give me more autonomy. Give me more, you fill in the blank. Our flesh says, I want what I want. We've seen that over and over with the Israelites. The more we feed the sinful desire to satisfy Self, the further we drift from the biblical commands of loving God and loving others. We start navel-gazing, looking at our own desires, our, our own wants, and they trump everything else. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, verses 34 through 40 of chapter 22 uh, the scene, you know, he, he's preaching, he's, he's sharing the word, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they approach, they're there. And then in verse 35, it says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, meaning Jesus, a question. And the goal here was the writer of uh, Matthew, Matthew, the, the gospel says, hey, uh, it was to test him. He's trying to trick him here. And he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then in verse 39, Jesus goes on and he says, and the second is like it. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We're we're looking at a prophet, so... Uh, Very helpful here for us to see that. 
Now it's important to note here that Jesus isn't reducing the law. Jesus isn't saying, okay, well, well, the law isn't necessary. Instead, he's summing up the law in these two categories. Loving God and loving others. Saying these are the two categories to which you must live by. A categorical summary of the first part of the Ten Commandments is to love God. A categorical summary of the second part is to love others. It's a treatment of others. And, and guess what, right? Like the Israelites, none of us can do that perfectly. None of us can fulfill the law and meet the requirements of the law that God demands. Uh, Jesus' point here is not like you need to try harder. Uh, Jesus' point is in this summary is to further show that even on a basic level, right? If, if we were to give you just two things and say, hey, love others, love God, like you wouldn't be able to do it right. You are not going to meet holy creator God's righteous expectations. We cannot obtain the righteousness required to satisfy the demands of holy creator God on our own. We need someone to act on our behalf. We need an alien righteousness that is outside of us, foreign to us, to intervene and be credited to our account. Because no matter how hard we work, without Christ, it's not good enough. Without Christ, we are absent the righteousness required. See, Jesus Christ steps in. He accomplishes what we could never accomplish. The perfect life of Christ attributed to us as believers. And Jesus, our Savior, not, is our Savior not solely because He died, but because He lived a sinless life as well. Forgiveness of sins is great, but we need righteousness for our sake. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, in Jesus, not in our works, not in what we do, not in the prayer you pray, not in any baptism, not in anything, but in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. See, we need that. We must become righteous. That's Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So essentially, we, Jesus Christ, he, he takes our sin, He dies the death we deserve, and we get the righteousness and the life that we don't deserve. What a wonderful exchange. It's the glory of the gospel. Uh, I, I mean, I thought maybe someone would smile. It's a beautiful, it's beautiful news that because of Christ, on your behalf, it's Christians that have been given this gift of righteousness and new life in Christ. Now we've been called to pursue a life of holiness. 
denying self-satisfaction, aiming to rightly love God and love others as we've been called to do. This is not to gain God's approval. It's on the basis of God's approval for us in Christ. We do this because we are, not to try to gain something we aren't. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, after telling them uh, the dangers of some sins of others, he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. He's given this whole just illustration and exhortation about what they're doing and some of the sins that are happening in the church in that time. He says, but hey, this isn't how you learned it, church, believers, church that I love. He says in verse 20, he continues on, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then this is what's crucial here for our time. He says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. There's an there's a old self. There's a way that you used to do things. He says that belongs to a former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. So we put that off and then we put on something else. And here's what he says. To be renewed. Renewal. Regeneration. Restoration. Made new in the spirit of your minds. And to put on now the new self. Uh, Most of you might leave uh, when you get home today and you might uh, take off your church clothes. And you may put on something comfy. Put on some sweats, some joggers, whatever, whatever you put on. You're taking it off. You're putting something else on. This is the illustration here. To take off the old and put on the new, but only in Christ. Is that possible? Only in Christ. And he goes on. He says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's something that happens to us because of Christ's work in us. And if that is not true for you, then my prayer, my hope is that you would be radically changed today by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you too would leave here on a pursuit of the new self. Just as God has made a covenant to us through Christ, right? Uh, Ephesians written to New Testament, the new covenant of Christ. God had made a covenant with the Israelites as well. So there was a way that God had called them to live as God's chosen people. It wasn't a, okay, well now just do whatever you want. No, God said there's a, there's a way that you will live if you're going to represent me. Like, I have an expectation. Tyler Cash has an expectation for my children. They don't always meet that expectation, but there is a certain way when you wear the Cash family name that I want you to live. Same for us as God's people. We're ambassadors for Christ. God has called us to walk in Away. We've seen over and over the Israelites, we know over and over throughout human 
history that we fail miserably. We drop the ball. We mess it up. That's why we need Christ. But let's look here at this portion of Scripture, and I want to give us a four-heading outline to help us kind of walk our way through this text. Uh, You know, the goal here is to kind of build a bridge from the Old Testament, from the Israelites to, to 21st century Christians and make some applications that I hope will be helpful for us today. Four heading outline. First, we'll look at the vision. That's in verses one and two. Uh, Second, we'll look at the meaning. Uh, Thirdly, we'll look at the reason. And then lastly, we'll look at the result. The vision, the meaning, the reason, the result. Sounds like an album cover or something. The vision in verses one through two. Look at these with me here. We read this vision that Amos was given. It says, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And Amos said, well, I see a basket of summer fruit. Now, at first glance, uh, if we're honest, like this sounds kind of weird. It's, it's kind of like, okay, there's a basket of summer fruit. Uh, the Lord shows it to him. Uh, Amos answers, uh, well, yeah, I see a basket of summer fruit. It's almost as if, you know, Amos is even asking kind of and wondering, like, how does this uh, take uh, uh, precedence in what you are going to say? Like, what does a a basket of summer fruit have to do with with anything? And it's important to stop and take notice on the play of Hebrew words here. Remember, the Old Testament is mostly written in Hebrew. And the words summer fruit and in closely resemble each other in Hebrew its original language. Uh, They sound alike. Uh, It'd be kind of like in our English um, uh, language, uh, like lead, L-E-A-D, and lead, L-E-D, means two different things there. They they sound the same, but they mean something different. So uh, here the Lord is using this play on words while showing that just as the summer harvest was ripe, it was ripe, ready for picking. Uh, the, the readiness would not last long. Israel was ripe for judgment. Like, like the, the time had come. The, the end was coming soon. Uh, then we quickly move to the meaning. He describes what's going on here, which helps us to make that observation of, of what exactly is going on. Uh, then we read, the, then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many bodies, they're thrown everywhere. Silence. Pretty dramatic scene unfold. See the Lord declaring that the nation of Israel will come to an end. He references the Passover, as he's already done earlier, with this phrase, I will not pass over them again. This would be very familiar to the Israelites. Uh, If you remember uh, the story of the Passover, right? Uh, In Egypt, when the Israelites were in captivity, uh, the final plague of the Lord used uh, to release them from uh, captivity, 
and enslavement to the Egyptians was the Passover. God commanded a lamb be killed, and then the blood would be uh, marked on the door, and they would pass over all who had the mark of the lamb, the mark of the blood. But all who did not participate in the sacrifice, what happened to them? Pretty dramatic, right? They, they lost their firstborn. Firstborn child was, was killed. And this was the final straw for Pharaoh, and he finally released the people from bondage here. And here God says something very important. He says, I won't, won't pass over anymore. I won't stop. I, I, I will now turn my people that were blessed into now people who are cursed. I, I will take them from recipients of the blessing. All because of their sinful rebellion. Verse 3 expresses the songs that were sung in Temple worship will now become wailings in that day. Uh, One commentator describes this as inarticulate, shattering screams such as found in primitive funerary laments and in the face of sudden catastrophe. So like there's a lot of death going on and there's a lot of mourning going on because of this event. In other words, the false worship that the Israelites engaged in that brought God no pleasure, but brought them much joy. Remember, we, we looked at that weeks ago. Like they were, in, they were rejoicing. They're enjoying their worship. And God says, it means nothing because your heart is far from me. And he says that now these events that you you, you like to enjoy your, you, you think are so great. Now I'm going to turn them from joyful celebrations to lamentable devastation. They will wail over the mass of dead bodies piled up and thrown everywhere. And it's such traumatic sight, they will scream out, Silence. We saw this before silence. The Lord is here. We see this reverence, this awe, this terror, this trembling of the people. Like, like, don't even talk about it. The devastation of the Lord has come and there's nothing else that needs to be said. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of destruction and chaos that should not be missed. This is a picture that we must come to terms with. A a reality that we must not let pass by. Often we carelessly think through and just, just pass by the true understanding of what the devastation of God's wrath will mean for those who do not believe in Christ for their ultimate and final salvation we must all come to terms when the lord's patience wears thin and restraint is removed the consequence is devastating there's no fairy tale ending there's no hero last minute coming in and and saving the day 
is final. Jonathan Edwards is once quoted saying, wicked people will on the day of judgment see all there is to see of Jesus Christ except His beauty and loveliness. Remember, Jesus will return. He's a mighty warrior bringing judgment on all who fail to recognize Him rightly as King. a lot I could say about some of the pictures that we present of Jesus in our day and age, but I won't. The point is, if you do not stand in right relationship with God through salvation in Jesus Christ, redeemed by the blood of the perfect spotless lamb, this will be your fate as well. And I don't say that to scare you. I don't say that to try to uh, fear-monger you. I I say that because I love you enough to tell you the truth of God's Word. And and we must see God's love as well, even as He's presented us with the Scriptures that communicate this truth. Nothing else will suffice except Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. And the good news is that salvation is offered today, right now, this very moment, for anyone who would profess the name of Jesus and follow Him as Lord and Savior the rest of their days. Move on to verses 4 through 6. We see the reason here. It says, hear this, you who trample on the needy. He starts to call out. He's starting to give us some specifics here of of what exactly is going on here. He says, you bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell again? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the shaft of the wheat. Now this is where we really get into the observation, as I mentioned, of the, of the sin of self-satisfaction, especially of the Israelites here. And I, I want to mark up three categories that we will see as they were living in rebellion to God's command to them as God's covenant people. The first category we see is oppression of the poor. Oppression of the poor. We won't spend a lot of time here because we've talked about this area in a lot of detail as we've seen this over and over uh, throughout this prophecy. But they're described as people who trample the needy. Uh, they bring poor, the, the poor uh, to the near of their end. Essentially what they do here is they... Uh, use their advantage uh, at the, the utmost to bring disadvantage to others. They meet, mistreat others for personal gain. And once again, we must not miss this opportunity to ask ourselves, like, how do I treat others? How do I treat those around me? Do I take advantage of those 
around me? Do I leverage my personal relationships for personal gain? Is it always for my advantage or do I seek the good of all people? We also need to hear, need to read, uh, hear that they're, they're buying people. Uh, they're purchasing human beings. It says the poor for silver, the needy for sandals. Uh, we've read before in the book of Amos that the Israelites were once slaves themselves, but now they're engaging in slave trading. Like they, they've taken their advantage and they have said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll do the same. Let's continue to feed self here. And brothers and sisters, that is not okay. Slavery is not okay. It's never been okay. It never will be okay. The use of another human being made in the image of God in bondage for personal servanthood is wrong. Always. Any level. Over and over. God has expressed His anger towards those who engage in the sinful act of slavery. And here, it's, it's no different. It's no pass. Well, you're my people, so you, you can do it. It's wrong. God pinpoints this area as one of the reasons judgment must take place. Second area we see the sin of self-satisfaction on display here in our text is in their business practices. We see in their business, right? It says that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. Uh, so a, a shekel and an ephah were weights and coins that were used uh, in the economy then. Okay? They, were, they were used for uh, economical uh, benefits and uh, usage of their times. And what was happening here, right, and it was very easily manipulated. Uh, so they would actually uh, rewrite the numbers. So say a shekel uh, said three because it weighed, it was three grams, they would write five on it. So then when they would uh, use these in business transactions, they would actually uh, they would, uh, be dishonorable and they would manipulate the transaction. So the one that's purchasing something would then think they're getting more than they're actually getting. Does that make sense? It's like if you go buy you know, some uh, rice, a bag of rice, I don't know, and you, it says 10 pounds, but really it weighs 8 and you pay the price for 10 pounds instead of 8 pounds. It's like opening up a bag of chips, right? It's like, this is not full. Okay, that's a better example. Thank you, Lord, for that one. Uh, definitely, right? But here what's happening is a little bit more serious. They've gone to the effect where they are intentionally manipulating their business transactions. The seller was misleading them, thinking that things aren't are what they aren't. Essentially, the point here is that they were decreasing the actual amount given by dishonesty. Manipulation in order to increase their own profit. Self-satisfying here. We also read here that they deal deceitfully with false balances. Uh, This is just a further indication of their deceit when dealing with money. They're dishonest in 
their practices. Then at the end of verse 6, we read there that they sell the chaff of the wheat. They sell it, sell it as wheat. So chaff is literally, the meaning is that it's worthless. It's like, this is the worthless part of the wheat. So the shaft goes, the, Jesus uses that illustration in the New Testament for believers and non-believers. But shaft is just, it's not worth anything. It's worthless. And what they're doing here is they're, they're mixing in the fake with the real. And they're saying, yep, it's all the real thing. This is a call for us to evaluate our own business practices. And look, that can be as a consumer, uh, that can be as a business owner, and that can be as an employee. No matter what you're doing, when you're engaging in business transactions with others, are you doing it for the glory of God? Are you honest? Are you one that wears something, leaves the tag on it, and takes it back to the store? That's wrong. Stop doing that. Are are you one that has no integrity in your business dealings with others? Are, Are you one that is transparent in your engagement with others? I mean, do we have integrity? As brothers and sisters, representatives of Christ in this world, we should be the people that walk with the utmost integrity in all that we do. Sometimes we may have to cut our losses. But it is much better, I'll use Jesus' illustration, cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin. Much better is that part of your body gets thrown into hell rather than the soul. That's a paraphrase, obviously. But brothers and sisters, we must be people of integrity. And here we see that the Israelites were not. And because of their disobedience, judgment is coming on them. The third and most important sin of this self-satisfaction, the most abhorrent we see is their hypocrisy in worship their hypocrisy in worship here verse 5 let's look there it says they they say when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the sabbath that we may offer wheat which we just learned was actually uh, false wheat for sale we'll stop right there right the lord here describes the people's attitudes towards worship He describes the the attitude that they had. Their their disposition in the worship service. Um, The new moon was a religious festival that was celebrated by the Israelites. Uh, A Sabbath day was a day of rest that the Lord had given to them where no work was to be done. They were to rest and enjoy the things of God and worship their Creator who had given them everything. There's a lot of implications here, right? We should take time to rest weekly, make and practice healthy rhythms of of rest. That is important to us all. But we we read here that their worship that was uh, apparently false was superficial. 
It was hypocritical. Because guess what? They don't even want to be there. All they're thinking about during their time of worship is how they need to get back to work. How they can't wait for this to be over so that way they can get back to cheating others. So they can get back to doing what they want to do. They're so worried about their own advancement and personal gain that worship to God has become a hindrance to them. What a reminder. What a, what a stop, pause, reflect moment for us in our day and age. Studies show that the average church attender attends services once or twice a month. That they, they might show up to the corporate gathering or, or maybe they don't. Now this clearly shows that many have fallen into the sin of self-satisfaction in this area that wrongly says other things are more important than the corporate gathering and the worship of God. Now, many way may uh, say, and I've heard this before, like, well, I worship God all week. Good. Amen. Do that. Yes and amen to that. Continue to do that. Worship every single day. Let everything we do be done with praise and thanksgiving to God. But the Bible is clear in many places, prescriptively and descriptively that we should not neglect the gathering, the corporate gathering of our brothers and sisters. It's essential to the Christian life. Many examples, but I'll, one of the most direct is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, like, it's important that we come together to do these things. He says, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you say the day, that's the day of judgment, when the second coming of Christ drawing near. Brothers and sisters, this is a time to pause and ask ourselves the question, how seriously do I take worship? The corporate gathering. How, how seriously do I take it? Is it priority or is it optional? What causes you to miss the corporate gathering? Is your absent frequent or is it only when necessary? And I'm not trying to guilt it. My wife is not here today. She's not feeling well. That's why I had my, my boys this morning. That was fun. I love my wife. I'll go home and love her better because of this morning, right? <laughs> but we, things happen. We get that. But we, we must ask, right? Like, am I, am I missing the gathering, the, the time that God has said, hey, come together? Or, or that He has said, we'll, we'll say that because I think there's, there's, there's liberty and if a church decides to meet on a Saturday night, that's, that's them, what, that's fine. But when you gather, do you prioritize that gathering? 
the corporate gathering, the, the worship of God. And then we've got to like kind of go a little bit deeper. And then we've got to say, okay, so now when I'm there, do I want to be there? Or am I doing it out of compulsion, out of necessity? Am I just waiting for it to be over, right? Like, what am I going to have for lunch today? Are you thinking right now, like, I wish this guy would stop. <laughs> like, oh, man, their service is way too long, right? They went over an hour. And just, like, I got so much work to do. I got so many, so many things to do. And, and I get it, right? Things fill our plate. They fill our minds. But we must be people that are intentionally asking God, to work in and through us, to renew our minds, to, to change us, to help us to focus, and to help us to prioritize the gathering. We must be careful to appreciate, and I believe take full advantage of the freedom to worship freely, at least while we can. I mean, there's so many all over the world that are not able. That's why we pray for the persecuted church every morning, right? In our pastoral prayer, we will pray for them because we want the Lord to, to bless them because they are literally, there are people all over the globe that are restricted from corporate gatherings, underground churches, they cannot publicly gather. And guess what? These brothers and sisters will risk their lives to be there. Oftentimes, we let a, a minor headache prevent us. And once again, that's not to cast judgment, but it's to help us to think and evaluate. Are we taking advantage? Are we using this as an opportunity and giving praise Every chance we get. Is it an optional addition to the week? Half-heartedly participating when we do? Or is it the excuse to miss everything else? Nope. That's where my church gathers. Nope. I'm going to worship my God. I must take this seriously. May we not be a people who display hypocrisy in our worship to Holy Creator God. And may we prioritize the corporate gathering. And if you're a guest here, we're glad you're here. If, if, just want you to be somewhere. It doesn't have to be our gathering. There are many gatherings. We, we love the church. There are plenty of churches in this area. Worship with one. It doesn't have to be ours, but do it. Lastly, we come to the result. Look at verses 7 through 14, and we see the result of their sinful self-satisfaction. We're going to kind of walk our way through this, and then we'll, uh, we'll take a pause in one section. But in verse 7, it says, The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Now, this is, he's swearing to himself again. We've seen this. He does it three times. It's like there's no one else that I could swear to. Uh, the pride of Jacob, uh, the Lord was Jacob's 
pride. He had his, his, his pride was in the Lord is what the word tells us. And then he says, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And then verse 8, shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. So let's pause right here real quick. Um, So God is saying that, hey, this is sure to happen. He's saying this is going to happen. I will not forget what they have done. They have gone too far. Destruction is here. And what he uses here is a natural event that of the, the Nile that would rise every year at a certain time, and it would flood so that people would say, oh, well, just like that is sure and certain to happen, this must be taking place. He says judgment will come. And then he goes on, he says, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. We see some some present prophetic words here, and we see some uh, future prophetic words. There's some stuff that's happening now that will happen to them. And then we also see uh, some of the prophetic uh, words of some of the things that Jesus fulfills here. But really what we will look at here too is that just God's, sovereignty on display God God's power here Uh, this is also a reminder of the Israelites of the other plagues in Egypt when God used darkness to fall upon the earth as judgment so almost saying to them just as it happened to the Egyptians it will happen to us too God must not be pleased then he goes on in verse 10 he says I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Leave your jokes to yourself. I will make it like the morning for our only son and the end of it like a bitter day. This baldness here is, and sackcloth would be a reference to mourning. Uh, So what would happen in deep times of mourning Uh, in the days of the Israelite, when something bad and terrible would happen, then they would shave their heads bald. Then they would wear sackcloth as a representation of deep lament. So not only would they be uh, have it within themselves, but outwardly it would be displayed that like this is tough. I am mourning. I am hurting. I am... I'm weary because of what is happening. He says your feasts, your festivals will become like these times. They're they're going to become like these times of of mourning, times of sadness. He said it's going to be so bad it will be like a day you lost your only son. We see kind of some uh, New Testament Christ Prophetic language here too. But he says basically the pain of this judgment and the intensity of the judgment will be horrific. It will be devastating. Then in verse 11 he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now we're going to camp here for just a a, a minute. I want to focus a little bit on this uh, consequence of the judgment. Here God says, I will take away my word from you. I will take away my word. He said, you won't hear it. He said, it'll be like a famine. Usually it was a famine of food, right? Whereas a lack of, so we see here there's a, a lack of God's word here speaking to the people. And, and, and people will search. They'll go to and fro and far and wide. He says, you won't find it. This was specific for their time, but we see this in our day today. Brothers and sisters, there is indeed a famine in the land. Once again, I can't help but think of persecuted Christians all over the world. And those that have gone before us, those who have literally died for the Word of God, smuggling Bibles into countries where the Word of God is prohibited. Martyrs that have gone before us that have have been burnt at the stake because they will not recant the truths of Scripture. And today, in our country, where once again we have freedoms that are unheard of, like an anomaly. And so many people that call themselves pastors, preachers, or just Christians neglect God's Word. Like it's not even existent. They neglect the Word of God for cultural relevance or tweetable quotes. Shy away from from the truths of Scripture in order to gain a bigger fan base. And that's publicly. We do it personally too. Other things prioritize our personal time with the Word. Mine too so often. Let let busyness take place. Replace my time personally. Like I even, you know, study time for for sermons in my devotional time, I try to have those different because it's a different, you know, I want the, the text that I'm preaching obviously to first penetrate my heart, but I'm looking at the text different in many ways. So I still want to have time where I'm just, just soaking and just being with the Lord, hearing from the Lord. And guess what? In this day and age, the primary way that God speaks is through the Bible. Here it is. We've been given God's Word. And it's limitless. It is a treasure that can never be fully discovered. We will never, ever untape all the truths. We will not ever discover all of the beauty we will never 
be tired of God's Word when we approach it the way that it should be approached. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And, it is, and as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is the greatest need of the world also. So see, brothers and sisters, when we publicly gather, we sit under the teaching of God's Word, we grow in godliness, we grow in our understanding, then we take it practically and we study it on our own, then we become ministers in our sphere of influence. And guess what? You don't have a lot of good stuff to say. And I say that because I don't either. If I just stood up here and rattled off my own ideas and my own thoughts and we'd, be all, we'd all be doomed. Like, don't come here to listen to that. If we ever stop preaching the Word of God, and hold us accountable. I speak for Pastor Brandon, Pastor Gabe, myself. What we have to give is God's Word. And that's it. I've said this before, but... You know, the, the reason why historically pastors used pulpits or some type of stand was so that way it was preacher word people. The word of God standing between the preacher and the congregation. Always knowing that what's coming is from God's word. And it's not the ideas of our own. But what I want us to take here, what this passage should remind us, is that if, if God used a removal of His Word as a consequence, as a judgment, then how important is it to us today? You know, how would it affect your life how does it affect your life? You go weeks on end without opening up God's Word. It should have drastic effects. Brothers and sisters, may we never neglect to appreciate and be committed to the faithfulness of God's Word. Verses 13 and 14, we Lastly, see here that in the day the lovely, in that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So here the Lord closes out this section by showing that literally there's no one that's going to escape this. There's no one that's going to escape this judgment. It will be all-encompassing and will have drastic effects for everyone. He talks about the strong young men. He talks about the pure young ladies, innocent young women here. Uh, similar oaths in verse 14, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, shows us further 
ends of destruction. Uh, One commentator kind of puts it like this, which I just think is pretty helpful. It says the words guilt and way in verse 14 are parallel to God, lowercase g, suggesting that all three terms refer to deities and that Israel was making oaths and promises in the name of pagan gods. So basically, it's just the faithlessness had spread throughout the land. It's not just the people of the covenant, people of God, but the judgment will and would be equally broad. Those who swore by foreign gods would fall. They would never rise again. They, those that practice explicit false worship, worshiping the pagan idols in their time, destroyed too. Hopelessness, destruction here await covenant people who have turned away from their heavenly king and have gone after their own self-satisfaction over true worship to their God. So, We pause, we reflect, and I want to just leave us with two questions as we pray and close our time. Broadly, how have you given into the sin of self-satisfaction? Like personally, in your own life, right? This This is applicable in different ways to me. It's applicable in different ways to each of us. You, know, you, you go a little bit deeper, sub-point, right? How are you responding to God? And then secondly, how are you responding to others? So I want to take a moment, just pause, reflection, ask the Lord to speak to you. If you're, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, Once again, the glorious good news that Christ has come, has died, has accomplished all that needs to be done for reconciliation with you and holy creator God. It's available today. So pause, reflect, and if you need to, repent. I'll give you a moment, then I'll close as the band makes its way up. Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we take this time to first say thank you for Jesus. Lord, help us to remember that is, is nothing that we have done to earn salvation, but it is all credited to your grace, your mercy on 
those whom you've set your love upon. And even as Paul tells the church in Ephesus, before the foundations of the earth. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to celebrate that. God, I pray for each and every person gathered in this space. Father, I pray that you would, you would renew us today. That we would literally leave here different than we walked in. That you would meet each and every person where they are with the, the truths that they need to help them to grow to the likeness of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us where you found us. And that the Christian life is indeed a life of continued growth. So we praise you for that, Father. As we close this time, as we sing a song of reflection, as we then get to observe the baptism of the young man, would you help him? Would you help it to remind us all of our own baptisms, remind us all of our new life in Christ. May we all be encouraged and emboldened, empowered to unapologetically live committed to your word. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.